Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I want to look this morning at the lesson of a godly legacy, the lesson of a godly legacy. And before I begin, I want to ask you a question. What is the greatest lesson that you've ever learned? The greatest lesson you've ever learned. Now, you might be a little hesitant to say, well, I don't know if it's the greatest, but think of just a great lesson that you have learned in your life. And I want you to consider for a moment that lesson, not not just when you learn the details or the facts of that lesson, but the point or the moment at which that lesson became most real to you. For instance, you can teach a kid how to fish all day long, and you know, casting the rod and the reel is fun for a season, and and like they enjoy that, but that's going to wane pretty quickly, right? That's all work at the end of the day, and you can teach a kid how to take their own worm or cricket or whatever the bait may be and put it on the hook, but fact of the matter is, if you keep doing that and that's all you do, that hook's going into somebody's finger pretty quick, right? I mean, There's a part of it that the details that you must teach fall short. But the moment that that first fish slams that bait on that hook and fish is on, that's the moment you can't teach. But that's the moment when your teaching comes together to form a lesson and what is that lesson? Real, real, real. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, and I mean, with every ounce, that, that little bitty perch is just fighting against that rod. It might as well be a seven-foot marlin with a three-foot nose. It's huge, you know, because at that moment, that lesson took hold. It's like when a child learns a, a math equation, you know, because when you take Algebra 2, you're going to use this every day for the rest of your life, Right? I remember sitting at one of my daughter's volleyball games one time and telling one of her friends, listen, don't sweat Algebra 2, just get through it. You won't ever use it again the rest of your life. And at that moment, I learned a lesson because my daughter's algebra teacher was sitting right behind me, very quickly and distinctively corrected me that, yes, in fact, you would. That's beside the point, though. That lesson, when they take that formula that they learned and apply it to life to solve a problem that they've been confronted with, or or when a child reads a story and they just bask in the wonder of that story and they love it and they love it and they love it, but more importantly, they take the things about life that they learned from that story and all of a sudden they begin to see life a little differently. They begin to understand things a little more deeply and, and can bring a little enriching to their own life. That's what I'm talking about this morning, friends. That, that moment when lessons anchor deeply within you. That's what I'm aiming for today. Today I want us to look at three lessons of a godly legacy. Three lessons. And here's what I want you to understand. That, that when we live in these moments of the lessons of godly legacy, it changes us because that's what real education and teaching is for, not just to inform us, but to make us and to shape us, yea, to change us. And God's word comes to us not just to make us more brilliant, but to make us more bright 
like the light who is his son, Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. God blesses all who believe in Jesus with eternal life because he perfectly fulfilled the law for us by taking our curse upon us. That's what three lessons are going to lead us to understand today. Go with me to Genesis chapter 26. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 as we begin. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. God's promise first given to Abraham now transfers to Isaac, his son. And a great heritage is entrusted to Isaac here. And and we see the legacy that he's received from his father. And we gain insight into his family. You see, Isaac was a man with a massive blessing from his father. A blessing that is transferred to him now. That's what the first five verses of Genesis 26 tells us. God visits Isaac and he transfers the blessing that was first given to Abraham. Now he hands it to Isaac. And he says, this is for you, not just to you because of your father, but for you. And you receive it because your father obeyed. But we see that a new famine was in the land, not the same famine, but rather a new challenge, a new trial for Isaac and for his family. And by the Lord's direction, Isaac returns to the land of Abimelech where he had sojourned with his father. Here the Lord will bless him and will establish with him the oath that is given to his father. And so the Lord repeats that oath that he had given to Abraham, now given to Isaac. And he tells Isaac, don't miss verse five, It is because Abraham obeyed that this oath shall rest upon him. And so Abraham bestowed upon his son the heritage of faith by which he gave through the example of his life. You see, from one man's obedience comes a lifetime of blessing. But God's blessing must be stewarded faithfully. You see, friend, every generation must take hold, if you will, of the baton that is passed to them for the leg of their race. In any team track event where the baton is involved, the baton is key because it is the one who is passing who is responsible to make sure that it gets firmly established into the hand of the one that is receiving so that they can take hold of it and run with it. Because no matter how well you run, if you don't finish with the baton, your finish won't count. Every generation must take hold of the baton that is passed to them for their leg 
of the race. And so here we see the first lesson that I want us to consider this morning. It's the lesson of God's blessing. The lesson of God's blessing. And we see it now established in the first five verses, but then carried out in verses 6 through verse 33 of Genesis 26. Some interesting things transpire as we look at the life of Isaac. First and foremost, he settles in Gerar. And when the men of Gerar or Abimelech's land, the land of the Philistines, come out to meet him, he is fearful again and he repeats the sin of his father. He lies about his wife, tells them that it's his sister only, which is again a half-truth. But God is still sovereign and still protecting his covenant promise. He exposes this to Abimelech. Abimelech comes to Isaac and said, you lied to me. And Isaac said, I was afraid of you. And he says, this can't be this way. And so he returns Rebekah. And by the decree of the worldly ruler, Abimelech, protection is decreed over Isaac and his family. But he has to leave. He can't stay. That's what Abimelech says. He says, you can't stay here. And so Isaac begins to journey into the valley of Gerar. And we see a very interesting practice that he entails here, the digging of wells. And it says that he digs again the wells of his father. He digs again the wells of his father. What God is doing is he's leading Isaac as he led his father. And so he promises again to Isaac, what will transpire. And in that place, after digging several wells, we see that God appears. He repeats the promise to Isaac that he had given to Abraham yet again to remind him of his presence and of his power and his provision. And in that place, it tells us that Isaac built an altar and worshiped the Lord and dug a well and dug a well. What's his deal with digging? Doesn't it make you want to ask that? In that place later, Abimelech returns to him and makes a treaty with him because he's seen. The world has looked upon the life of Isaac and seen such the hand of blessing that they could not deny it. It made them fearful of what he had become. And so they entered into a a, a treaty or a covenant to recognize the Lord's blessing. And again, we see that another well is dug and there they called it Beersheba. You see, what happens is Isaac finds success and he finds the blessing in building his life. And it does not come without problem, nor does it come without frustration. Sometimes we think if we do everything right for God, problem and frustration and trouble will not be in our life. But that's not true, friends. It was all over Isaac's life. And, and in many of the turns that he went to, he ran into trouble. These aren't just trite troubles that he had with Abimelech. These are potentially warring factions. And yet God took care of him because he continued to follow the blessing of God. There is one repeated practice through this that is used that literally we can trace Isaac's path through, and that is the digging of wells. And so we need to ask, why is digging wells so important to this story? Well, when you live as a nomad and your life is built by traveling around and you have a lot of people that travel with you, a large entourage and a large flock, they're going to need water every day. It's just the way life works, right? You better know where there is a well. You see, digging wells is not just a pastime. It's not a hobby. Wells represented life. 
And what God is telling us about what he was showing Isaac is that the digging of these wells was the provision of life that he was giving to them. He was showing him as he lived in the way of his father, the way that his father had built a life by the blessing of God. The Lord blessed Isaac, and we know he did it because of Abraham. You see, this is the lesson of God's blessing. It teaches that a legacy can make well digging, or shall we say, life building easier. Of following a pattern by which we've learned, by which we've been trained in. But that pattern and those practices can't make our life for us. Hear me, friends. Every person must dig their own wells. Hopefully, we learn from what is modeled for us. But legacy cannot replace the necessity of our own well digging. God intends for every generation to build on their legacy. But he desires personally that we learn his blessing in our own pattern and practices as we walk through the trials and the struggles of life to see his provision provided to us. You see, the lesson of blessing taught Isaac to learn that the place of abundant provision was where God would lead, not where we thought it looked best. That the place of an oath established peace with others was where God was at work. That that God's repeated faithfulness would meet him when his obedience rested in God and in trust in God. And, And the commanded practice of God for obedience would be that which would bring his expansion and his multiplication. And that in that place there should be a peculiar distinction on his life and that was his worship. Of the Lord. And all of these practices and all of these patterns we see in Isaac's life as he journeyed in the same places, as he entered into the same practices of digging wells to build his own life, and he saw the same provision from God. Isaac found comfort and he found contentment in the place and the practice of journeying to Beersheba because it was familiar to him. He had been there with his dad. But far more than only a place and a practice, Beersheba, the place where he worshiped God, became emblematic of a pattern of life whereby the Lord leads by the command of his word, delivered with the promise of the blessing and the abundance of his provision by his power that fills our life as we follow him by faith. The first lesson of godly legacy is this, friends. God's blessing is given to teach us who he is in the daily goings on of life so that we will steward all of life for his glory. Now watch this. Have you learned the lesson of God's blessing? You see, friends, in this lesson, this is that kind of a moment. Not when everything you've heard or intellectually ascended to, but when you've transferred it from what you know to what you now know. From what you've learned to what you've walked, where you've experienced it. You see, following God in obedience by faith to his word brings his blessing 
And as we are about to learn, not just for us, but to be stewarded by us for his glory in all of life. All of God's blessing rested on Isaac in his journey and also in his well digging by his father's legacy. But instead of stewarding it, he just spent it. And his whole life suffered because of it. Because they weren't prepared for the second lesson. And here's the second lesson we see. It is the lesson of sin's misery. The lesson of sin's misery. In verse 34 of Genesis 26, all the way through the end of chapter 27, we are learning the lesson of sin's misery. Genesis 26 ends with what I would call the aftertaste of bitterness from blessings that have not been faithfully stewarded. Walk with this through me. Esau, verse 34 of Genesis 26, was a miserable man. He was miserable from life's failures, where his own strength by which he had made his life didn't satisfy, and his loss, what he was not able to keep from gain. And it tells us he married two Hittite women. He literally went and did this, not just because he loved the women, but because he knew the separation that his misery had caused from his family led him to his own misery that would in turn bring misery back to them. And that's what transpired. Bringing two Hittite women into the family would bring greater misery to them. And you know what people who are enslaved to their own misery do? They bring misery and bitterness to everyone around them. That's what Esau did. And what we begin to see here is beyond the blessing of God that rested on Isaac and his family was the misery of sin that was spreading underneath. It introduces us to a greater reality of what is transpiring in his home and in his family because of his own failure not to understand the blessing, not to fail to receive it, but to fail to steward it according to God's word faithfully. And this is our second lesson, friends. Isaac lived off of the blessing of his godly legacy, but he didn't invest it to build his own with his own family. So what transpired? Bitterness and misery of sin would ultimately fracture the family. Here's a lesson to formula. God's blessing on your life, absent of your faithful stewardship, will always end in sinful misery. Isaac, chapter 27, is now very old and he plans to bless Esau. Now this is critical, friends, because if you think back to chapter 25, you know that God's sovereign choice was to pass the firstborn inheritance and blessing to the secondborn, Jacob. He tells this in an oracle to Rebekah. But it is unclear to me exactly how Isaac sins, though it is crystal clear Isaac sins in this. You see, either he does not know of God's oracle to choose Jacob, because in the text we don't have any indication that Rebekah told him God makes his declaration and that's it. The text moves on. So we don't know if Rebekah told him or not. We have no reason to think that she wouldn't other than what we're about to learn about her in just a moment. So either he does not know of God's oracle to choose Jacob, which 
if this is the case, demonstrates the spiritual passivity that we are about to learn about Isaac that ruled his entire life in his failure to lead his family and he was just following the natural course of life to bestow the principal blessing of inheritance upon the firstborn. And we might be tempted to ask in our own life, what's wrong with just following the natural course of life is that not right for him to do? Because that's how it was in that day, in that time, in that culture. No, friends. When what the culture does opposes what God has decreed, it's sin every time. It's always sin. And even if he would say, but I didn't know. You told my wife, not me. You Isaac are the head of this house according to God. The blessing was given to you to steward faithfully for your family. It is nothing more than spiritual passivity and your own lack thereof. And we'll see there's plenty of indication for this to have carried itself out. So it was either that or, and this is what most think, Isaac acts intentionally rebellious to disregard God. Knowing the oracle... He still loves Esau more and justifies the natural flow of things to pronounce the blessing of inheritance upon him. See, we've already learned that too, that Jacob loved Esau. Why? Because what he could do, it was manly stuff that he was impressed with. And mostly his stomach was satisfied by it. And so he loved Esau more. But Rebekah, she loved Jacob more. And so... He either acted passively or rebelliously, but either way, he sinned intentionally against God and tried to bless his favored son. And the bitterness that burned from Isaac's failure to lead his family comes to a head here. Friends, you don't just oppose God's word neutrally or without animosity. For Romans teaches us that outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. Our sin makes us antagonistic towards God. So this is not an innocence of Isaac. This is an intentional rebellion of Isaac. And we should see it in no other way, but not Isaac only. For we hear that Rebekah hears Isaac's intention to bless Esau and devises her own plan of deceit. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this, that she didn't just hear. It says in verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. You see, Isaac wasn't the only one who was sinning in this family for the inclination, the intonation, if you will, of the literature here tells us that since these boys had been born, since Isaac had made his determination to love Esau first and Rebecca hers to love Jacob first, she'd been listening to every word that he said so that she would know when the time came and make sure that the quote unquote will of God got carried forth. The problem was, it was by her strength and not God's alone. She's listening, friends. She's listening. And so when she hears, she makes this scheme of deceit for Jacob to go in and steal the blessing. She prepares a meal for him and she gives it to him and she forces it upon him. By the, the literature tells us, she takes it to him and says, you get in there and you take what is rightfully yours. 
And she says that, uh, or, or rather Jacob says to her, but I don't even look like him. I don't smell like my brother. I'm not as hairy as he is. And so she puts sheep's clothes or, 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 or uh, animal skins on him so that she can disguise him and conceal his identity. So there is intentionality to lie and deceit even in the scheming of the plans. But there is most of all a demand upon Jacob to follow through with the plan. We see her conniving deceiving nature here and then we see one other thing promising what she could not provide that if the curse comes on Jacob she will take it upon herself you see friends Rebecca knew what she was doing leaving no detail out to ensure that her favorite son would be blessed if we learn anything from this we need to learn this no one else can bear the guilt the shame and the responsibility of someone else's sin before God And mom and dad, listen to me. Neither you for your husband or your wife, neither you for your son nor for your daughter. Don't make a promise to your kids you can't keep. That's what Rebecca tried to do. And that was as sinful for her as a mother as any of these plans against her husband as a wife. So Jacob carries out his mother's plan. He goes to his father And again, knowing full well what he's doing. Isaac was confused because he hears Jacob's voice. But he he offers these tests. And every test, he's deceived. Jacob appeals to God's blessing, which really becomes the greatest decisive factor for Jacob. And here's the reason that Jacob appealing to God's blessing was the decisive factor. Because Jacob had knew that his father had lived his entire life beckoning upon God's blessing instead of stewarding it. It had been the blessing of God that Isaac had gone, yeah, that's right, I am blessed. I deserve this. God wants me to be happy. And all of these little self-help lies that, we've telling, that we are still telling ourselves today, I mean, obviously this is what God wants for me. And so Isaac, by his son's appeal to God's blessing, which he had selfishly used all of his life, allowed the tests of touch allowed the test of testimony, which still remained doubtful, to overwhelm the full failure of the test of voice, which he just never quite got over that until he went ahead and ate of the blessing of the meal. And the warm satisfaction of the food on his stomach overwhelmed the discernment in his ears of who he was really listening to. You see, though one test remained unproved, Isaac allowed the meal to satisfy him. That's interesting because that's exactly what his favored son had done years before with his birthright. So he ate the meal, pronounced his blessing on Jacob. Almost immediately, Esau returns, prepares his meal and brings it to his father. And Isaac is startled and says, who are you? And immediately Esau knows what's transpired and they're both shocked. And so realizing what has happened, the reality of deception fills the heart, the room, the whole house of both of them. Their whole family is stricken with the reality of deception that's just taken place. And the misery that it begins to heap up on them because Isaac has given all of his blessing and Esau is demanding a blessing from his father. And so Isaac, with all of his own ability, he tries to bless him, but actually it's a curse it will be the lack of provision and the lack of everything in every way it's a failed blessing and because of this Esau what has now been a burning 
ember of bitterness and misery against his brother now becomes a full-fledged, uncontrollable wildfire of hatred against him. And so he vows to kill Jacob after his father dies. Oh, but hearken, who is listening on but Rebecca herself? Sure she is. Listen, friends, when you're trying to pull all the strings to control all the moves, you better not miss anything that someone says. And so yet again, she repeats the practice of returning yet again to scheme and plan to send Jacob away to protect him. Hear me, friends, this is the lesson of sin's misery. Sin that is left unaddressed becomes a factory of bitterness, of guilt, of shame, of destruction from the lies, from the deceit, from the pride, and from the selfishness that fuels it. Isaac died a miserable man because at the end of his life, he watched his whole family implode and be destroyed. Why? By his own sin. What sin? Spiritual passivity that lived lavishly in the blessing of God, spending every ounce, but failing to steward it so anyone other than Isaac was pleased by it. Rebecca, she was miserable too. She was miserable from the loss of her family. First and foremost, the loss from intimacy with her husband as their secrets separated them slowly but surely from the birth of the boys on as they continually made small, minute decisions inwardly to choose favoritism over favoritism with each one. And then, as they got a little older, she knew why she chose Jacob as her favorite, because Esau brought these miserable foreign women into our family who invaded our family and heaped misery upon misery on top of it. And then... The loss of her baby son, her favorite son, whom she's the one who had to yet devise another plan to send him away to secure him from the deceptive scheme that she had planned prior. And little did she know that in the sending away of chapter 28, it would be the last time she would ever see him. She would die before he returned. What about Esau? Well, we've already seen his misery. He was miserable because all of his strength and ability by which he built his life, a self-made man, failed to satisfy him in every way. His anger simmered all of his life until it boiled over against his brother, whom he blamed by his cheating and by his deception for his loss and inability to take what he thought was rightly his. And so he did what miserable people do. He embittered everyone's life around him. Now, what about Jacob? Is there anyone here that's not miserable? Absolutely not, friends. Absolutely not. Jacob is miserable from his own exhaustion. His exhaustion of playing catch-up, of grabbing, of cheating, of getting ahead, and of scheming and plotting one more cheat or one more deception or even carrying out his mother's trying to salve the ember of self-entitled survival nature that he had continually repeated in his mind and built his life. You see, friends, this, the, the, the misery of sin may simmer for a long time, but if not addressed, it will ultimately burn down all that it touches to leave a life destitute of its misery. Have you learned the lesson of God's blessing? The lesson for which we aim that this moment you can learn. 
You don't have to simmer in sin's misery any longer. You are not going to create a way at some point in the future by which you will absolve all the troubles it's brought or you will in some way erase the brokenness that it has occurred or that you will in some way fix what you've had to do here. The only way to thwart and stop a lie is to bring it into the light and tell the truth about what it is. Repent. Repent. That's the lesson of sin's misery. That is the only way that your life and others around you are not ruined by its effect. There's only one thing that misery gets right, though, when it tells us. And here's what misery tells us. All is not right. And this is when we must remember the source of our blessing, which brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, it is the lesson of faith. We've had the lesson of blessing. God bestows his blessing upon us that we might steward it for his glory, enjoying it, but also expanding and multiplying it to hand it off. We've learned the lesson of sin's misery of what transpires in our life and in the life of those we impact and influence, if, if it's left unabated, if, if we continue to try to fix it in our own strength. But here, friends, here, the most important lesson of all, it's the lesson of faith and the legacy of godliness. And there are two verses that indicate how it is that we learn the lesson of faith in the midst of the mess of sin's misery. And the first part of this lesson is found in verse 5 of Genesis 26 in the echo of Christ by the model of Abraham. God promises the blessing to Isaac. Why? Because Abraham obeyed. Look at verse 5 again. And look at what he obeyed. My voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It was because Abraham obeyed. There's one commenter who notes the wording of what transpires here in verse 5. And he says this, Abraham was the true example of the law of God written upon the heart of man. Which is the very promise fulfilled of the covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. He goes on to say that the writer's ultimate example of true obedience to the law is the one about whom the Lord could say, he obeyed me, Abraham obeyed me. Thus, by showing Abraham to be an example of keeping the law, the writer has shown the nature of the relationship between the law and faith. What is that? That those who perfectly obey the law are the ones who will be saved. But listen, Abraham was a man who lived in faith and could be described as one who kept the law. You see, we're learning the lesson, but here's the moment I want you to catch from this lesson right now. Abraham is a great example, but we know his obedience was not ultimate. As a matter of fact, Romans has already told us that his righteousness was credited to him because of his faith. And his credit becomes ours too when we put our faith in Jesus. Only by Jesus' perfect obedience can any be made righteous. But by his obedience, all who trust in him 
will be made righteous. You see, friends, Abraham is but an echo, but Jesus is the voice of God calling out. Jesus is the one who comes to us as the living word of God, who is the living manifestation of the very law itself. And by his perfect obedience, we can be made righteous. But there's a second verse. And it is the verse where we learn of the deception of Rebecca, by which we must hear another echo. You see, she thought she could bear her child's curse She couldn't, no matter how much she wanted to or was willing to. But Jesus could. Jesus could. And not only could he, he did. And he did it willingly. And 1 Peter tells us he bore our curse from sin in his body so we would not have to live in the misery or die in that same condemnation from our sin, but that through his wounds, the prophet Isaiah says, we can be Healed. Friends, this is the moment when you cease to hear the facts and you begin to believe that today, if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will repent of your sin, whom no one else can be responsible before God for, and you will trust in him, he will by faith bear the curse of your sin, Galatians 3.13 tells us, for you, and by his wounds you will be healed from it. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that his perfect obedience to the law is sufficient for you. Here's the lesson of faith. The blessing of godly legacy may come through your family, but it may not. Legacy surely can come through our biological family, but for many today and an increasing number, that's no longer true. For some, not even possible. But listen to me. There is a legacy of godliness that also comes through our faith family. This is why Paul teaches Timothy in Titus, or excuse me, tells Titus in chapter two that the younger women and the younger men should learn from the older women and the older men in the church. Why? Because the legacy of godliness is not just passed down through the biological family. It is passed down by faith. It's disciple making. It's Christ following It's the influence and the investment that we have. The lesson of godly legacy is one of disciple making, teaching people to live by faith in a glorified Savior who is all sufficient and that his name is Jesus Christ. Have you learned the lesson of God's blessing? of sin's misery, yea, even of faith in Jesus, to trust in him, in his perfect obedience, not yours, in his perfect cleansing and healing so that you can walk in his word that is transforming you. You see, friends, God blesses all who believe in Jesus with eternal life because he perfectly fulfilled the law for us by taking our curse upon himself. And this doesn't have to be a lesson of intellect only today. It can surely be a moment of transformation if you will do this, put your faith in Jesus. Have you learned that lesson by repenting and trusting in him today? Christian, are you learning and training in this lesson for your own growth and maturity into Jesus' likeness? Are you serving and are you investing, discipling so others can do the same? A 
a few final words of application just to help us bring it home. The value of God's blessing through a godly legacy cannot be overstated. It continues to bless. It continues to expand and multiply more and more richly throughout all of life. There is no end to God's blessing just as there is no end to God himself. But the true impact of a godly legacy, hear me mom and dad, is established not by parents only and even not essentially but by the one who perfectly obeyed the law in every way, Jesus Christ. And that is why he is the one to whom mothers and fathers must always and only point our children to. Listen to me carefully. Your children are not yours. They are his. And if you train them as yours, you will lead them in the paths. You will teach them to dig wells like you dug wells. You will not teach them that the wells draw the living water of Jesus Christ. Do not make promises that you cannot and yea, will not be able to satisfy in them. Tell them about the only promise maker who will never fail to make good on every promise and in ways that are far greater than we could even understand today. Point their eyes through you so that you can be an echo of him as Abraham was to Isaac, but that so all of their life will not just repeat what they saw of you, but in their own way will learn to take up the baton that you pass to them of a godly legacy. And they will run firmly with baton in hand the race that Christ has set for them. So that when they cross the finish line, the baton of the gospel will be firmly in grasp because they've been firmly grasped by the one in who they've trusted. Jesus Christ. Let's pray.